Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs, and for the next year, I'll be teaching entrepreneurship at Vinh University in Hanoi, Vietnam. Tonight, please welcome James Cortada, author of IBM, The Rise and Fall and Reinvention of a Global Icon. Jim, welcome. Thank you. Really love this book, and because I've been following IBM like anybody who's uh, over the age of 50, and I'm 62, uh, has followed IBM our entire lives and remember when they were a superpower. So um, before we get started, I want to tell you that um, I have a real close connection with IBM that uh, I don't know if you remember this magazine, but they used to have a magazine called Profit Magazine. And I was on the cover of Profit uh, back in 1993 uh, when I started the world's very first formally organized investor angel network. So IBM means a lot to me uh, because of that was such an amazing experience uh, to be able to be on that cover. So let's start off with you telling us about your professional career. So give us some background on that. All right. I started out in life getting a PhD in uh, European diplomatic history, thinking that I would be a professor. Met a, uh, an IBM uh, executive at a cocktail party before I completed my dissertation. And basically, he convinced me that uh, I would have a lot more fun uh, at IBM. This was 1974 when computers were just some of the coolest thing going. And at that time, IBM was considered the Apple uh, and uh, Amazon of its day was always ranked the number one company in the United States and around the world. Uh, I was intrigued. I jumped in and stayed for the next 38 and a half years uh, with a career in sales and consulting and management. But at the same time, I did not give up my love for history and writing. And so I continue to write books this time now uh, after IBM or within IBM, uh, dealing with uh, management issues and the history of business. And this is how we get to the issue of uh, my writing on the history of IBM after I retired in uh, 2012. That's the long and the short of it. And so why did you write this book? And again, I really loved reading the whole book because of what IBM has meant to uh, the United States and I guess the world at large. Three reasons. Number one, it was the uh, uh, the, the biggest uh, computer company uh, of the 20th century. About 70% of all computers in the 20th century came out of IBM. So let's just begin with that on a worldwide basis. So it was a you know the, a very big elephant. Number two, I was an employee of the company and I got intrigued by it and the fact that uh, most people couldn't get into its corporate archives because they were private to the company, but as an employee, I could, and I found that it was a gold mine. And third, I was trained as a historian. Uh, what historian doesn't want to do research and writing? And uh, 
over the years, people inside of IBM said, well, Jim, you really have to write a, a history of the, of the corporation. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I got to wait until I'm out of the place because otherwise everybody will think uh, it's just a piece of marketing literature from uh, from the company. So after I retired, I said, okay, now I have a free voice. I can say what I want, which I did in the book. And there you know, the criticisms in there about what worked and didn't work and, you know, and so on and so forth, like any other organization. But that's how I got to the book. And uh, I felt that between the research I'd done in the company, the fact that I had lived in the company, so I knew what questions to ask, where the skeletons were. And my experience as a historian, I thought I could pull off a decent book. And so that's what's happened. And in fact, I've even gone on to write a second book that just recently came out on uh, its uh, corporate culture. So the whole process was one that developed largely out of those two experiences of being a historian and an employee. Um, an employee. Um, so a question from the audience. What was the process of getting the book approved by IBM prior to publishing, and did they strike any interesting stories or observations? I did not go to IBM for approval because I was no longer an employee of the company. And uh, I felt that I did not need to go and get approval uh, for that reason. However, what I did as, as a retired employee was to follow some basic practices that we had at IBM that I thought were wise and prudent. Number one, I, I never uh, revealed any uh, IBM secrets, such as forthcoming product announcements, which is a super no-no. In fact, it's against the law in some countries. Number two, I respected the privacy and confidentiality of uh, our customers. Uh, so I, I never uh, revealed anything in the book without the permission of a customer, unless it was already in the public domain that is reported on the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, that sort of thing. Uh, and number three, I respected the uh, privacy uh, of individuals. Um, now, while I discuss uh, the the practices of, say, the CEOs by name and uh, other people, I always use publicly available information so that nobody would feel like, like I had violated their privacy. Those are good guidelines to follow. I would follow them today if I were writing about anything else. Uh, why did you write this book? I wanted to, it was fun. It hadn't been done. There had been other books written on IBM. And to be quite candid, uh, from a historian's point of view, they weren't all that good. And the reason for it is that they uh, only dealt with slices of the company. I thought as an employee that they had left out significant pieces or they were just simply dated. You need, for a major corporation, you need a new history about every 15 to 20 years. There's that much that goes on and it isn't just a question of slapping on a new uh, chapter. It's about revisiting issues in the light of new evidence that appears in the course of 15 to 20 years. So I wanted to do it. And it was a form of closure, by the way, you know, for me. Uh, 
you think about think about uh, uh, your careers that you've ever had, or when you uh, graduate from college. What's the first thing that happens afterwards? You you look back and go, my God, what happened to me? That four years in college went by so fast, or those 30, 40 years in my career went by so fast. What does that mean? Well, it's um, it's a form of trauma, a positive form of trauma, I guess, if there is such a, an idea. But closure is very, very therapeutic. And I love writing this book. And by the way, the book is, is a positive, but also candid account of a company that's been around for over 100 years. It was great. <laughs> I loved it. Well, I thought it was the most comprehensive book that I ever read on IBM. Thank you. Yeah, uh, and I've read a bunch of books on IBM as I read Buck Rogers' book and Tom Watson Jr.'s book. Oh, that was um, a magnificent book. Yeah, uh, and so uh, Tom Watson's book was re really, really good. Um, most everyone listening to this show is over 50 and remembers when IBM was a superpower. Uh, please remind the listeners, uh, which you mentioned in the book, of some of IBM's accomplishments. All right. Uh, there are several. Number one, it uh, uh, created the punch card equipment, tabulating equipment from the 1890s down through the 1950s that preceded the, uh, the arrival of the computer. The second thing they did was, as a result of that, they were able to introduce computers into commercial uh, enterprises in the 1950s and 60s in ways that made sense based on prior experience. And essentially through the invention or development of the System 360 in the 1960s, uh, basically made it possible for every large enterprise in the world to now uh, install computers. Uh, it caused the industry as a whole to increase in uh, size by about 20% compounded each year in the 1960s and early 70s. And obviously everybody seemed to now embrace mainframes. That's the second thing they did. The third thing they did was when they introduced the IBM PC in 1981. If you recall in those days, you had this tiny little company called Apple and Commodore and some others. And it was a fringe product. But when IBM brought out its PC, basically de facto gave permission to the world of computing to start using PCs. And a whole bunch of PC companies now appeared and everybody seemed uh, to install computers on their desks. By everybody, I'm talking about, you know, instead of 700,000 machines being out there uh, the year before the IBM PC came out, by the end of the 1980s, uh, people were buying PCs by around 10 million every three or four months from all the vendors. So the world had changed. Uh, so that was the third uh, thing they did. And the fourth thing they did was the... Uh, uh, they figured out how to uh, implement uh, consulting and tech support and computing uh, as, as business functions for people to use around the world. And now that's pretty common. And that's why you get to uh, all the IT help desks that you have, why you have so many consulting firms showing you how to use uh, 
uh, integrated supply chains, all that sort of stuff. So they did that as a services uh, function. It was their size. They introduced the world to how to use computing in all its myriad forms. Yeah, I, my first computer in 1996 uh, was an IBM desktop computer uh, that came with a phone modem, you know, that you could call oh, yeah. off of that in 1996. And uh, it was $3,000. I remember, like, oh, my God, $3,000. And now, I mean, you can buy a whole group of computers, phenomenal computers for $3,000. And it came with a uh, electric car, a uh, wireless electric car that was also thrown in. I don't know why they did that, but they did. <laughs> it had an IBM logo on the car. Um, how did IBM get started? And because I think most people think the Watsons, uh, uh, Tom Watson Sr. started, but how did they get started? And, and who was the founder? All right. Actually, it has multiple founders. What, what happened was that in the 19th century, there were uh, three different companies, little companies that were involved in data processing um, that were brought together by uh, a, um, a businessman in New York by the name of Flint, who was trying to create a, uh, a data processing company that he could leverage the stock value of. It was a bit of a scam, to be honest. Uh, but one of the things that was interesting, there was a punch card uh, piece of the business. Uh, there was an industrial scale piece of the business. And then there was another piece of the business uh, where employees could uh, uh, punch in uh, their, into a time clock uh, for when they came to work and when they went home. Okay, So they get paid. He brought these together, uh, created a company, taking the, the first uh, letter from each of their names uh, to form the name of the company, ICT, and then uh, discovered that there was accidentally enough synergy there uh, that he ought to turn this into a real business. So that was in 1911. Uh, by 1914, they clearly needed a, a real executive to come in and do that because everybody up to that point was just operating their own little company. So they brought in this guy by the name of Thomas Watson. Watson had been a uh, the senior sales executive at NCR, National Cash Register, which was considered perhaps the coolest, best-run company in the United States. Highly paternalistic, highly uh, innovative. Very successful, but he and, and several executives had been uh, prosecuted by the federal government for uh, setting up a, a bit of a scam business for selling, knocking off uh, competitors by underselling uh, uh, NCR products. So he had been fired from NCR, uh, eventually acquitted by the federal courts in an appeal, but very wise. He was looking for a job. He was 42 years old. And he took on this job with this little company that wasn't doing very well and decided he could try and turn this into a company as good as NCR, which he did. In 1924, he changed the name to the International Business Machine Company. 
or IBM as we know it today. He was a uh, excellent executive, a great promoter uh, of the company, and he took he ran the company from 1914 to 1956. Took it through the tabulating uh, period, got rid of the scales and all that ancillary business that was pretty irrelevant uh, to what he wanted to get done. Got it into the computer business along with his son, uh, and uh, as they say, the rest is history. Um, we have a question from the audience. Are you able to leverage your IBM learnings in becoming a better investor, advisor, and entrepreneur? And if yes, then please explain some examples. Uh, well, you know, anytime you work for a large corporation, you're going to learn a lot of things about business. Uh, you're going to learn, for example, how to work with business partners. You're going to learn how to uh, acquire small niche companies and how to evaluate them. Uh, you're going to learn about management uh, practices that make sense, how to deal with people. Um, so I would, I would think that um, those kinds of experiences spill over into advising uh, startup companies and, and helping communities. So let me give you an example of what I mean. Uh, after I retired from IBM, uh, I did what a lot of uh, experienced managers do all over the United States and in parts of Western Europe, and that is uh, I joined a, a, a nonprofit organization uh, where I live here in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, that provides free advice to uh, entrepreneurs and startup companies pro bono for free. And so... I did that here and was able to provide a lot of advice to these startup companies that had a great idea for what they wanted to sell, but they didn't know how to build a business behind it, you know, to, to make it run. <clears throat> and I was shocked at how much I actually knew about what you got to do to do that. And it's worked out great. So, I mean, right now I'm advising a, a company in the Congo that's trying to figure out how to get food from the farms into the supermarkets without uh, the middlemen who take an enormous amount of profit out of uh, out of the process and don't provide as much value add as they do in, in the Western world. So you say Congo, IBM, Jim Cortada, food, uh -huh. avocados. Really? How does that all work? <laughs> oh, by the way, for your audience, a piece of trivia. If you're in the Congo, avocados are called avocados. Yeah. <laughs> I hope that answers your question. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I was surprised to read in uh, at all, that IBM almost went out of business a few times and as recently as 1993. How did that happen? Well, the way I explained it in the book is that beginning in the 1970s, um, as IBM looked out over the next decade, uh, as they usually do as part of their planning process, um, they decided, senior executives decided that the world was going to continue to use mainframes forever. And so they built factories and they hired people in the 1970s and 80s, only to discover in the 1980s that a fundamental shift took place in the marketplace as people went to desktop computing, not only PCs, but other intelligent uh, terminals. And so the amount of business that they could get from mainframes began to shrink rapidly. And they had too much infrastructure 
and too much cost built into the into the business. So they had guessed wrong. And so uh, the, the business changed so fast that within several years, uh, they were in deep trouble. And they had to start laying off people, shutting down factories, you know, the, the usual scenario when you get into that kind of a situation. They, uh, they got into such a bad shape that the board of directors fired the CEO and several other executives and brought in uh, new talent and a new CEO, Lou Gerstner, from, who came out of Nabisco, had turned that uh, organization around, had done very well prior to that also at American Express. And he did a terrific job in the 1990s. A lot of IBMers didn't like it, but they also loved it because very quickly he turned the business around, got it focused on what made sense for the business, matching it up against the marketplace. Then we ran into a similar little, uh, a less dramatic form of that problem uh, just after 2010. I won't say it was going to go out of business. It definitely was not, but it was shrinking. And so uh, we went through a, a, another period like that where uh, the market was going one direction, IBM was going in another direction, and that's now been realigned properly. So it's back on a normal course. Um, what skills does today's IBM leader need to keep it growing and relevant? Repeat that again. Uh, you broke up a little bit. I said, uh, what skills does today's IBM leader need to keep it growing and relevant? Needs to be a politician and humble and open. Um, being a politician, meaning he's got to persuade everybody around him, uh, inside of IBM, outside of IBM, customers, regulators, the public at large, about what best to do with computing and how to do that. That's point number one. Number two, he's got to be humble and that needs to understand that uh, IBM doesn't necessarily know everything about what's going on in the marketplace and what people want, and therefore to be open about it. Uh, I think uh, the third thing is that uh, they, they need to recognize that they have to honor the needs uh, of many stakeholders, not just customers or stockholders. They also need to honor the, uh, the needs of their communities where they have factories and lots of employees and society at large. And I say that because there are companies out there that, um, how to put this politely, uh, kind of just push forward and 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 you know just push on profits and and revenue growth uh, while harming society. Some social media firms, for example, will allow any all kinds of bad information to float around without respecting the fact that they could actually control some of that. Uh, some companies just treat their employees awful, and so that's why you get a surge in, uh, in unionization activity. Uh, a CEO at IBM has to remember that he's got more than just customers to deal with, and that there's a lot more going on out there than he or she might think they, they know. And that's tough for a lot of CEOs who think they know it all. And, and huge egos at that size of company. Egos is a problem. Uh, I've known several CEOs or dealt with them at IBM, and these are successful 
well-educated, smart people. And ego is can be a problem. Now, there have been some wonderful exceptions. Uh, um, one of my favorite was a gentleman by the name of uh, Frank Carey, who who uh, ran the company in the late 1970s, probably did more to grow IBM as a, as a corporation in terms of size. And he was a pretty humble guy. Uh, just that's the way he was. But ego can get in the way. And the, and the CEO they fired in the early 1990s had been a fighter pilot in the, in the Navy, and he never recovered from the experience. <laughs> who, who was that? Uh, that was uh, 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 John Akers. Oh, right. Uh, so, and I'm going to ask you about that. Um, who was the best leader and why? Whoa. Okay. Uh, I always get asked to rank uh, CEOs. Um, each one's a little bit different, but I would say uh, if I had to pick one, it would be the successor to uh, uh, Tom Watson, who created the company in the first place, or formed the company when he came in in 1914 to 1956. And that would be his son who took over the business for 16 years, uh, Tom Watson Jr., because he was able to take a very large company that was run as if it were a small company and turn it into a major corporation by creating divisions and what have you. And that just caused the company to explode in growth. Uh, but his father, who took a little company and had, you know, like 1,400 employees and wound up, you know, tens of thousands of employees, he's pretty close up there too. But he had like 200 people reporting to him. So obviously when his son came in, he had to change that, right? You, you can't have 200 employees reporting to you. So I would say the two Watsons and then uh, Frank Carey, who uh, ran the company in the late 70s and, uh, and was able to make it, again, a very huge uh, corporation that operated in over 150 company, uh, countries in an, in an integrated fashion. And all the other ones uh, drop below those three. So those three are pretty close to being equal. Uh, what's the corporate culture and what type of person fits in? Ah, okay. This is a lead I'm going to be shamelessly uh, uh, promoting here and, and tell everybody I just published a book about IBM corporate culture called Inside IBM, Lessons of a uh, Corporate Culture in Action. It just got published a few weeks ago uh, to address exactly this issue. Um, the company uh, did three things that created a culture that all its employees and most of its customers will tell you made the company successful. Number one, it established very early on a set of basic beliefs about what they would or would not do. And they stuck to that to such an extent for such a long time that uh, it was a, it became a, what I call a corporate theology. Respect your customers, respect your employees and, um, Excellence in everything you do. Basically, you know, fairly simple ideas, but they stuck with it. And if you violate those things, you're out. Uh, you just, you couldn't do it. You know, it's against the law. Second thing they did was they created uh, a, uh, a culture where uh, it was a meritocratic culture, but where you were trained constantly every year of your career on how to improve your technical skills, your managerial skills, your operational skills. So that was the second thing that was there. 
as to who fits in in that kind of a world, you got to be smart. You got to be ambitious. Uh, you got to have a very high level of ethics. I mean, this is, it, it shocked a lot of people how ethical people had to be in that company. I've, I personally have fired one person for ethical misconduct that would not have been fired in another company, but just had to do it just because you, you can't violate, you know, the theology of the, of the firm. So a person who likes uh, challenges is, is willing to work 50 hour weeks or, or longer, who is ambitious, is creative, but you gotta be smart too. So please, if you're not smart, don't come into the company. It's just, it's really hard. You'll get flushed out very, very quickly. It's a very cerebral organization. Uh, why did Lou Gerstner, chairman and CEO of IBM in the early 1990s, say the culture of Thomas Sr. and Jr. Watson developed was the biggest problem when he arrived? Ah, his feeling was that uh, a lot of uh, IBM employees felt empowered and that they knew to exactly what ought to be done. And uh, the problem with that was that... Uh, they had forgotten that they needed to be humble about what they don't know and that they had to earn uh, their daily bread uh, in modern terms, in modern ways, uh, with modern products. And uh, they couldn't be entitled saying, well, you know, the, the world needs our services and therefore they will come to us for our services. So there was that. Um, I likened it in the book, uh, I likened it to being living in a fish tank in a restaurant. If you're a fish in a, in a restaurant and you're getting fed fish uh, food every day in the little fish tank, you're, you feel empowered. You feel like you don't have to change. You just keep doing your thing, not realizing that people coming into the restaurant were looking at you and say, I, I think I'll have him for dinner. <laughs> right? And, yeah. and uh, so... There was a lot of that going on, and so uh, he decided that people needed to be hungry. They, they needed to be uh, afraid that they're going to lose their jobs. And that was part of uh, the problem, I think, personally, and that is you were guaranteed a job for life when you, when you joined IBM. And, uh, I mean, you earned it, but... Uh, when they hired you, they hired you for life. That was the attitude, you know, and, and in exchange, you agreed to change your jobs over the years and then your careers and so on and move around and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but he found that people felt entitled and, and not working hard enough or creatively enough. And, and he, so he had to change that. Now, he also learned that uh, uh, it's very difficult to change a corporate culture. So a lot of what he wanted to change he couldn't, but that was okay because a lot of things that he couldn't change turned out to be things that continues to sustain the company right down to the present, such as his basic beliefs about meritocracy, quality of service, ethics, you know, things like that. I remember meeting IBM people uh, back in the early 1980s when I graduated college and thinking, Oh my God, how lucky would it be to get into IBM? Because like you said back then, you were guaranteed a job for life. 
I mean, nobody who got into IBM rarely did they ever leave unless they asked to leave, right? Correct. Uh, now, there's a price for that. The price is you have to agree to, you know, be a, a ambitious, hardworking, and so on for all the way to the to five o'clock on the last day that you're on the payroll. Second, you you also had to, uh, as part of the grand bargain, as it was known, uh, be willing to change your career, learn new things, and move about the company uh, all during the course of your 30, 40 years. Uh, you also agreed uh, implicitly that you will always work for the for the benefit and welfare of the company and all its employees. In other words, it was your company too. It wasn't somebody else's company. It was your company too, and you had a personal responsibility to make sure that thing worked well, which meant that from time to time, you'd have to go to your boss or somebody else and say, you know, folks, you're wrong. We got to change our situation. Now, a lot of companies, you can't do that. You, know, you can't be getting in food fights with your, uh, your management. But you would in IBM because you say, you know, look, this is my company. I've got to make sure it's going to be around for the next 20, 30 years because I'm going to be around for the next 20, 30 years. So there's there's that built into the culture. But yes, um, if you're willing to pay that price, you're going to have a nice middle class or, or better uh, uh, living. Your kids are going to go to college. You're going to own a home. Uh, you're going to do very interesting things. And of course, you're going to meet very interesting people. And you would be in the middle of a lot of cool things going on in the 20th century. Um, we have a question from the audience. Can you comment on the culture and its embracing of innovation? Uh, current day definitions include making it uh, safe to fail. Did IBM have a culture where it was safe to fail? Uh, interestingly enough, um, the culture always, uh, well, two things. Uh, one is it welcomed innovation across the enterprise, and they had a whole series of functions and processes and so on to encourage that because the nature of the industry was that it was constantly changing. Uh, we can quibble about, you know, where all the innovations right and did they come at the right time and so on. And, and my two books deal with a lot of that. But innovation was there. Now, as to uh, uh, failure, uh, nobody likes failure, but failure was an accepted form of um uh, if you will, the price that you pay when you're innovating. You're never going to get everything right the first time. Uh, now, a lot is done to try and mitigate failure, but failure is not something you necessarily got blamed for. Little war story. Uh, in the, uh, and I, It may be uh, mythology, but it, it made the rounds, and I certainly practiced it as a uh, as a manager. And the war story is from the, the 1950s. A salesman uh, lost a big sale in New York. And as was the custom then and now, there was what they call the loss review. That is, everybody would get into a room after a, a major loss and analyze what happened so that uh, they could avoid that problem with the next sale because a lot of sales are, you know, very expensive, you know, mil million dollar sales and what have you. So they went through the review, just like the military does with after action reports, the same concept. And they figured out what the problems were. And one of the problems was 
uh, one of the conclusions they reached in that particular case was that a of the salesman had not done all the things he was supposed to do that normally leads to a successful sale. And so the salesman at the end of that meeting said, well, okay, I guess I'm toast. I'm out of here. And the executive running the meeting said, why would I want to get rid of you when I just paid $650,000 of the loss, that was the cost of the sale, to teach you how not to make that mistake again? In fact, I want you to go around and give talks all over the company about how not to, how not to make that mistake. So the guy got to keep his job. Years later, I used to hold loss reviews because uh, I was in sales. If we, if we lost a sale, I would bring everybody who was involved in the sale and even go out and interview the customer who bought somebody else's equipment to understand why we lost a sale. Because sometimes it's not a fault. It's, you know, we priced it wrong or we came in late or the technology wasn't the right fit and we we offered the wrong thing. You know, we had a bad solution. Um, loss reviews only work as a positive force if you don't go around blaming people. Now, still you're gonna blame some people screw up, but normally not so. So failures can be learned from. So there's a humility there that is baked into the culture. Although let's not mistake what's going on. At the same time, you do not want to fail. It's embarrassing. And oh, by the way, if you are not performing well, when you have your annual appraisal, you're going to hear about it. And hopefully you're going to hear about it as you are uh, failing so that you can correct your failures before they become a disaster. That's the culture. Can corporate cultures be developed if everyone works remotely? I mean, in this day and age, so many of the young people, let's say under the age of 35, uh, especially after the pandemic, prefer to work from home or work from a different location, but not come into an office. Can a corporate culture be developed if everyone wants to work, work remotely? Yes. In fact, IBM did that. Uh, beginning in the, uh, really in the 1890s, uh, uh, the company had a lot of remote workers. Uh, people go out and install equipment or repair it or debug software, you know, they were on the road. Uh, when I was a salesman, uh, I, I probably only came into the office for one hour a day. And my managers would ask, you know, in the 1970s, why, why aren't you hanging out with your customers? What are you doing in the office? And then uh, from 1992 forward until the end of my tenure at IBM in 2012, I worked remotely. Um, and yet we had a, uh, we had a uh, corporate culture that made that possible. Uh, there are a number of elements that need to go into it. Number one is everybody remote or working in an office needs to understand what the values are of the corporation. They need to have a very clear understanding of uh, what their jobs are and what the outcomes of those jobs ought to be. And they ought to be measured on the outcomes. You should also, also only hire people who... Uh, are self-starters who can who don't need to be told what to do every morning, but get up and go do it because they they know what they have to do. So that means training. It also means uh, uh, 
creating communities where they can get together, either like we do on Zoom or uh, physically in an office. Uh, so that can be done. Uh, that culture exists today at IBM and has for decades. Um, there are a lot of companies I find, for example, in Silicon Valley, I, I sort of giggle behind the scenes and say, oh, what fuddy-duddy old-fashioned companies these are and the issues they're dealing with. And some of them are, are, are you know, some of the most uh, attractive, uh, fashionable companies today. And you look at it and you say, oh, they're struggling with issues that, that IBM uh, resolved decades ago, or they're innocent, uh, naive about what you need to do. Uh, when are they gonna bring adults into the room to run a company? Uh, so for many companies, this is new, uh, the remote work, but uh, for some companies like IBM, it's not, and we have inside that company, we had a very strong uh, culture that was the same, whether you were working remote or internally, but it can be done. You train, you hire the right kind of people for that, and you trust them that they're not gonna be just walking the dog all day long. Mm -hmm. uh, IBM had an amazing sales machine, and I read uh, sales guru Buck Rogers' book on sales. How were and are IBM salespeople trained, and what is the profile of the types of people that succeed in sales at IBM? Okay. Um, it's nice to hear Buck Rogers' name again. I knew him, not well, but I knew him because I was in sales at the time that he uh, he was a sales executive. Um, first, let's talk about who gets hired as a salesman. Salesmen uh, tend to be uh, self-starters. High, uh, high energy level, um, good people, uh, folk, they, they can work a room, uh, they're good communicators, uh, they, have, they can read a room, uh, what's on your mind by what's on your face, so to speak, uh, and they're intelligent and they're quick learners. Those are the kind of people we bring in. Then what they do uh, have done for decades is to train them on not only on products, but also how to run a territory. That is how to deal with, since IBM's business is business to business, corporations to corporations, um, how to develop and maintain relationships with your customers. Because sometimes you would have a customer for two, three, four, five years or longer. Um, so they would be taught literally in a classroom and then also by following other uh, senior uh, senior salesmen uh, around for six months, carrying the bag, so to speak, you know, learning uh, through mentoring. So classroom uh, exercises, uh, lectures, mentoring, and then uh, all through their careers, their uh, their their managers continue to mentor them to improve their skills and give them feedback on a, on a constant basis. Everybody in sales was required for decades to spend at least two weeks a year taking classes on either products or how to improve their communication skills or writing skills or, or what have you. Or in my case, I went to uh, these wonderful uh, one-week uh, seminars that were taught at the Harvard Business School and University of Virginia and Sloan as part of our development. So we became as much business advisors as, as we were peddlers pushing uh, products. 
And most of the time you don't push products, you, you push uh, solutions to business problems where products are needed or services are needed. So that's how they, they develop that sales force. Uh, you wrote the customer's king and it got what it needed and not whatever it wanted. Explain that. Not all customers knew what they needed. Um, let me give you an analogy. If you have a, a, a tummy ache, your stomach doesn't feel good, you go see your doctor uh, and you tell your doctor, I have an upset stomach, uh, I'm throwing up, I, I don't feel good, I'm not sleeping at night. What are you doing? You're explaining symptoms to him. And you say, uh, give me a, uh, a prescription for Pepto-Bismol, let's say. Um, but the doctor might look at you and say, well, wait a minute. You know, this is the third time you've come in this year with this, uh, these symptoms. I want to take a look at what's going on. So he x-rays you or he does an MRI and he comes back and says, you know, you didn't eat bad food last night. You don't need Pepto-Bismol. You need something else. Well, that's what the IBM folks oftentimes would do. If, I, if you were my customer for three or four years, I knew everybody in your, in your company. I, I knew executives, I knew managers, and so on. And you owed them an honest answer that says, no, you don't need Pepto-Bismol. You need something else. You've got a deeper problem to solve or a different uh, issue to resolve. Uh, you gotta change the way you manufacture stuff or you gotta change the way you uh, distribute stuff or your personnel aren't properly trained for some new function. And that's what I mean. All right, does that help answer the question? Absolutely. Why did you write uh, shareholder value is turning out to be a cancer? Ah. Beginning in the 1980s, there were some uh, academics who will go unnamed here, but they're in the footnotes, uh, began to say, well, you know, if you're a corporation, you really ought to just focus on profit and the profit ought to go to uh, the investors. And uh, and everything else is secondary. And that was great. Except for one little problem, and that is. As you, you squeeze more and more profits out of the enterprise, uh, there's less money to invest in communities and salaries and in training and in uh, R&D. So as a result, in the 1990s and early 2000s, a lot of companies, not just IBM, who had consumed the Kool-Aid about uh, shareholder value, uh, began to shrink, extract value out of their uh, their assets, sold off factories, closed factories, laid off people, reduced uh, uh, benefits, didn't invest in their communities anymore, closing, you know, not, not investing in uh, um, United Way or country clubs or uh, uh, school programs, all of this so there'd be more money to, to give back to uh, stockholders or shareholders with the result that a lot of companies um, weren't growing their business, weren't thriving. Until the 1980s, IBM didn't do that. They, they figured out that they had a whole series of stakeholders 
And in fact, they identified what those stakeholders were in the 1920s and kept nurturing them in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. So could IBM have pulled out more profits to hand out as dividends in those decades? Yes, they could have. Did they? No. As a result, they were able to grow the business a lot faster than uh, many of their competitors did. And by the way, this whole issue that you just mentioned uh, is the reason why I wrote the second book. Uh, and in fact, it's such an important issue that even before I write, uh, wrote the chapter one, I had an introduction that that talks about what economists have taught us about uh, shareholder value destroying uh, the ability of a corporation to grow and to innovate. What does it take to run a successful global business? Like, what was your observations about that? Uh, a couple of things. Uh, you needed a, a corporate culture that was generic enough, but relevant enough that could be applied, or I should say implemented worldwide. Things like ethics. Every society generally likes ethics. Nobody wants to be a crook, right? So. Uh, having a set of ethics. And by the way, in most countries, you have laws against bribery and things like that. So you need a, a set of ethics, a set of uh, values that are shared by human beings around the world. So you build a reputation for that. Second, you want to have uh, some common processes that are generic across the world. In the case of IBM, this is very, very important because it improved efficiency on the one hand, but also uh, uh, allowed for new business. Let me give you an example. Say uh, a company like General Motors wants to implement a new supply chain process around the world, and they want it to be the same in 12 countries. Well, they got to come to a company like IBM that operates the same way in 12 countries, because then they know that the local IBM people will implement it with their the GM people, and it'll look the same and all the software will talk to each other across all 12 countries, right? So you need that. Uh, you also need uh, a management team that is uh, very familiar with activities around the world. And the way you do that is you, you hire uh, people from multiple countries to work in corporate, multiple countries to work in the division, multiple uh, companies, uh, countries to uh, populate your board of directors. And as you develop somebody's career, particularly those who are going to be senior executives, you make sure that they do tours of duties in other countries. So you might spend 18 months in Japan, and then you might spend a year in Europe before you become the CEO of, of IBM. So you get a global perspective. So you, you mix your, your talent and uh, you diversify your talent. So if you walk into, for example, uh, a lab, uh, at IBM, the 12 labs in the world, uh, laboratories where they invent stuff. You walk in there and go to the cafeteria, you're gonna hear French, German, Italian, English, all being spoken by people who are mixed together in the same departments. That's how you do this. I'm wondering this, why do you think NCR, Kodak, and Burroughs disappeared? And you mentioned this in the book, but IBM is still thriving. And a hundred plus years later. Well, each one had its reasons, but 
But uh, the one I really like to, to look at is Kodak. Kodak um, just didn't understand what business it was in beginning in the 1990s. Uh, when uh, digital photography began to displace film photography. And they didn't know that their competitors were not other um, film companies or uh, companies that made cameras, but were the Japanese consumer companies, consumer products companies. So they missed that whole thing. And, and so they had to catch up and they kept changing their CEOs uh, every two, three, four years. Uh, bringing them in from outside who did not understand that the core value of the company was its ability to uh, coat chemicals on, on a surface. That sounds very esoteric, but that's essentially what film is. So they never understood that what their value was that they could trap images using chemical uh, uh, components. And and therefore, they didn't get into the into the microprocessor business. They didn't use uh, uh, chemicals properly uh, to develop, say, MRIs and scanning devices and so on. So they missed vast quantities of markets. And none of those senior executives who became CEOs understood uh, the, the core capabilities of the firm. In the case of Burroughs, Burroughs uh, um, was a... Uh, Merged in with another company, uh, Univac, and there was a the food fights as to who who was going to get all the resources. It was it going to be the Burroughs crowd or the Univac crowd, and Burroughs lost, and so the Univac executives wound up running the company and, and insufficient innovation in the place, and so the the product became old and tired, and nobody wanted it, so they went away. So it varies from one company to another, but. In IBM's case, everybody understood what businesses they were in, even if they were screwing them up sometimes. But they understood uh, the realities of their business, and they had uh, they they had the perspective of uh, having been in the firm all their careers. Um, what were the attributes of IBM that have managed to keep it going strong, not just surviving, but for a hundred years? Has has the culture changed, if at all, over the years? Uh, the culture uh, does change. Its values do not. You know, its basic beliefs do not. Uh, respect for the individual, respect for uh, customers, high quality service, excellence in everything you do, things like that. You know, what I call the corporate theology has not changed. Um, however, what I would tell you, and what I think, ninety nine point nine nine percent of all IBM employees would have told you from probably the 1930s forward, it, it was the quality of its employees. IBM really fussed over who they hired. They really did, because you think about it, you hire a, a little salesman like me. I came out of the company in 1974. My salary was $16,500. You say, well, were they making a $16,500 decision? No, they were making a multi-million dollar decision because I was going to be there for life. So when you make a multi-million dollar decision to hire somebody, what do you do? You get real fussy about who you're going to hire. So you're going to test their IQ. You're going to have a half dozen people interview them. You're going to make sure they're intelligent, that they have good grades, that they've demonstrated leadership in their prior activities. So, you know, being president of the school class or what have you. 
uh, being successful in sports and what have you. You're going to do all of that to make sure you bring in high quality people who like to collaborate, who who are ambitious, have high level of energy. That is your single most important asset and, and task that you must do. And then the second thing uh, was to be able to train these people. And we've mentioned this before, training them on a continuous basis. So they know not only about their company, but about business, but their customers. So they are confident in what they were able, able to do over the course of their careers. Because you can't just let somebody retire in place. This is unacceptable. And so the, the culture would modify along the way. But a lot of times what the culture meant was adding new services or new uh, 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 skill sets or new benefits in support of this whole ecosystem of, of customers, family, employees, regulators, and industry pundits all being in agreement about how best to use computing and ideally IBMs. Um, how big a deal was it when IBM had its first woman leader, Virginia Ramadi? Is that how you pronounce it? Ramadi. Yeah, Virginia Ramadi. Actually, internally, it was not. Because first of all, she had been a senior executive for a decade. And she wasn't the only female executive in the place. Um, the media made a big deal out of it. Oh, my God, IBM just hired a woman executive. Well, she had been around a long time. Uh, so it was no big deal. I mean, she was. there were only about three candidates that, were, uh, that they could have picked from unless they wanted to go outside the company. And, they, and the board of directors didn't want to go outside the company. They wanted an internal person. And so uh, it, it was, it was a, a non-issue. Internally, I mean, obviously, a lot of the uh, the women in the company were thrilled because, aha, one of us is now now finally broken through that final glass ceiling, right? But there were already uh, a lot of women who were divisional vice presidents and what have you. The thing you have to remember, IBM is a meritocracy. So most of the women who made it up through the corporation did so not because they were women, uh, they made it through the, because they, they had earned the right. That's just, now, you know, one could argue, well, maybe some made it through, uh, you know, got, a, you know, cut a little uh, uh, extra slack. But no, the vast majority, I would argue, made it because they had earned it. And and they were in a, in a meritocracy uh, where I, I cannot remember a woman who would have, who would have accepted being uh, promoted because she was a woman. It would have been a personal embarrassment for her in front of her female friends. Now, did they help each other? Sure. We had um, um, groups that helped each other, African-Americans, uh, Latinos, uh, women, and so on. Uh, um, but it was meritocracy. You didn't make it to the top without being meritocratic. So if anything, you know, IBMers were proud of the fact that they were edgy, you know, in having a woman, but that was more for public consumption than it was internally because internally it was 
yeah, it's about time, you know. She's a normal, logical person. It was irre- almost irrelevant that she was a woman, except maybe to the board of directors that probably saw the uh, the merits of uh, being able to promote a, uh, a woman into the role. But they didn't do it because she was a woman. They did it because she, she was the right candidate at the time. Jim, uh, we have time for one more question. And so I'm wondering about this. Uh, I guess it's two parts. One is... Um, where do you think IBM is going to be in 10 years uh, from now? And I know that's a hard question to go and ask. And uh, how is AI going to affect uh, IBM? And IBM has been in AI probably longer than anybody, right? Yes. Uh, since the 1950s. Uh, from the time that the term was invented. Uh, because it, it it played a role in every aspect of computer science, right from the beginning, uh, even before it was considered uh, the strategic, uh, before computing was even considered strategic at IBM, there were people uh, involved in it. All right, uh, as to the forecast, I've learned never to bet against IBM. I believe IBM will be around in 10 years. That's the first thing I would tell you. It's big enough, it's smart enough, and it's in the right areas of the business uh, to be around in 10 years. I think a village idiot could uh, forecast that. It's that simple. However, I believe that its uh, revenue source, and this is what we really need to get to, will come from uh, uh, hybrid cloud and artificial intelligence. Those will be the two major sources of uh, revenue. I am rather pleased with what they're doing with artificial intelligence, which is to rely on a lesson that they have known for decades, and that is whatever products and services it offers, it should be offered in the flavors of particular industries. So if you have an industry, let's call it strawberry ice cream, you should sell strawberry ice cream to that industry. If you have another industry that is chocolate, Chocolate ice cream, you sell chocolate ice cream to them because it's relevant. Um, and so what IBM is doing is it's uh, fashioning its artificial intelligence services uh, aligned with banking industry, insurance industry, uh, defense, you know, all, all the, uh, the half dozen obvious areas. And that's why it will succeed. And one final uh, note to make on this. I have walked into meetings uh, where there have been three or 4,000 people in the, in the hall that is in the meeting, uh, all of them with PhDs in computer science. Do that once in your lifetime, and you will never bet against a company like that. Jim, thank you so much uh, for spending the time with us. And I want to hear about your new book because I'd like to have you back again uh, about your new book on uh, corporate culture. So I hope everyone has a wonderful weekend. We'll see you all next week. And uh, as I said, Jim, we're looking forward to your new book. Thank you. Thank you all for showing up. I really appreciate it. Everyone have a great weekend. Stay safe. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern time for our live recordings. 
Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.